Welcome to Reality Check. I'm Jeannie Allen. Challenging debate on the state of education today. Thanks for listening. It's not often that I meet someone who spends as much time on education issues as I do, but I have the pleasure of doing that today. Laura Meckler reports on national education policy trends and the Department of Education for the Washington Post. She's also worked at the Washington Bureau of the Associated Press and the Wall Street Journal. Her excellence earned her a Livingston Award for National Reporting and a Neiman Fellowship from Harvard University. Laura, I am so pleased that you're joining me kind of on the opposite end of what you (laughs) normally do today. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to do this. We'll see how I feel on the other side. I might have more sympathy for my my interview subjects after this. Well, I was thinking about what hardball things can I throw your way, but really I just wanted to kick off with a question, which is how did you get into journalism? What got you interested to start? Well... In high school, I sort of had a little bit of a glint that maybe it might be something I'd be interested in, although I, at the time in high school, I probably was, if you would ask me, would have said I was interested in government or public policy. But then I got to college, and I started working on my college paper. And like so many people who have followed that path, it was just addictive. You know, I loved the feeling of being in a newsroom, the excitement, sort of the 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 humor, the um, cynicism at times, the thrill of, of bringing people together around all talking about the same thing and of knowing what's happening on campus. And sort of as soon as I kind of pulled myself into that my, my freshman year, um, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. That's very cool because a lot of students don't know what they want to do today. It's the whole subject of lots of discussion around higher education uh, and polls and surveys that education is not as relevant to most people anymore. So it's awesome to hear that there's still some of us for whom it was relevant. Well, it's funny because um, my university that I went to, Washington University in St. Louis, does not have a journalism program. I actually don't think you necessarily need a journalism program. Journalism is is a bit of more of a trade than a discipline, so it isn't necessarily an academic area, but it is something that I sort of found on my own. So even though I majored in political science and international development, I think it's fair to say I spent a lot more time at the school paper. By the time I was a senior, I was editor-in-chief, and I was spending a lot of time there and, you know, fitting in my my actual coursework in between, So, which uh, sometimes led to some late nights. But uh. You know, that's a great point. When I think about it, there was a, a, uh, the result of one of the surveys this week I read, Burning Glass Technologies, does a lot of data analysis for companies and about what higher ed needs. And one of their um, reveals was that those trade-specific majors actually don't result in as many uh, landed employment opportunities as something like I majored in, which is just the liberal arts or just the genre of the liberal arts. And I didn't go into it with an eye to public policy, but I did think about government, but I did student government like you did the student paper. Right. I did try the paper, but they didn't like the fact that I was so opinionated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you found your right. You found your lane, and I found mine, and and um, I think as, as it should be. The... Um, I think what a liberal arts education does um, at, at its best is it trains you to think, it trains you to analyze, to write, um, to understand arguments on both sides. No matter what you're doing, you need to be able to understand what other people are saying, whether you're you're just trying to um, inform people or whether you're trying to persuade people. You still need to understand how people think. And I think that that's what at least I got out of my liberal arts, liberal arts education was was those skills which are you know just lifelong and those are the skills that um, most of us grew up believing and knowing were part and parcel to being great at the media 
and I'm sure listeners right now for Reality Check, many of whom are aficionados of education, education reform, um, some that probably lean more right than left since we are on Reality Check, National Review, although that's not always the case. Uh, We are very mainstream here, uh, just like our work is. But some are probably like, why are you interviewing Jeannie, the Washington Post, on your podcast? So um, I called Laura and asked her to be on the program because uh, my encounters with her were that she was about looking for the opportunity to cover great stories in a balanced way. Um, So tell me how challenging that is these days. You know what? That part of it is not challenging. There are things that have gotten more challenging, and it's true we are in a hyper partisan environment, you know, not just in Washington. I think that that's changed. What's changed is it's everywhere across the country. It feels hyper partisan, um, very ideological. But truthfully, um, for me, I've always been comfortable wanting to know all sides of a story and wanting to really understand it. And I always say that when I'm writing about what somebody's um, point of view is, and the story is not going to be the way that they would have written the story. It never will be from anybody's point of view. But I want people who have read that story to hear their best case, their best arguments. You know, some people, when I talk to them on the phone or I'm interviewing them, they don't know me. They they fear, oh, my gosh, are you going to try to make – am I going to look dumb? Are you going to mm-hmm. pick a quote where I'm not articulate? And that's never my goal. My goal is always to, in a story like this, uh, in public policy stories, is right. to put forward their best arguments and then let's see what the other side's best arguments are and then – And people can, in the end, judge for themselves. I'm obviously making decisions about what I think are the most important or interesting things, but um, but but that's my goal is to give give somebody their opportunity. Well, when it comes to education, uh, this has been an enormous um, frustration for many of us. We watched in the earliest days. You know, I think you know we just came back from celebrating our 25th anniversary. We had an enormous summit with issues ranging from career-oriented pathways to what's happened to K-12 reform to technology to higher education. And, uh, you know, we were thinking and reflecting back as we were reaching out to the media to talk to us about this. In the earliest days of education reform efforts, the media wasn't very plentiful. Then there was a period of time where the media was covering it right and left. And now we're back at that time where unless you are New York Times, Washington Post, AP, and the big guys, there's just not enough, there's not a lot of resources, it seems. Or Let me ask you that question. To me, it seems maybe it's not resources, maybe it's not interest. Is it both? Or what is it that there seems to be a decline in national or local media coverage of education? Well, I haven't studied this, but I'll give you my impressions. I think that there are several things that work at the same time. Um, I think that in Washington, you do have a lot of public policy coverage from a lot of different new outlets, places like, you know, say Bloomberg or Politico, places that weren't um, players, you know, 10 years ago now are, and you have more policy coverage. On the local level, I think newspapers have just been decimated. I mean, Mm -hmm. they really have. Now, places like the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, where I spent 13 years, are thriving, New York Times. But they benefit from a national or international readership, and they're able to charge people to see their stories online, and they're they're finding ways through the storm of of, um, what media has, what newspapers have been through. But local newspapers, it's been much tougher. Their staffs have been stripped to the bone, in some cases past the bone, and it's it's harder. I think that they, that said, I think that 
it is a priority for lots and lots of newspapers to certainly cover their local schools because that's something that really matters to their readership. So I do think you still see a lot of coverage of, of local schools, whether those places are writing about the issues that you care about mm-hmm. or that your listeners care about. Mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't know, probably mm-hmm. less so. The last point I'll make is that in, even in Washington, even when you have lots of policy reporters on every policy that you can think of and many you probably can't, there is we're competing every day with you know with the Trump show, which mm-hmm. is um, you know a ratings bonanza on mm-hmm. all sides, as maybe the president would put it. Right. The um, you know there is just always something every single day that is a bright shining object that people are drawn to. Sometimes those things become real. Sometimes they don't become real. But there's a just a flood, a flood of news. Um, coming out of the White House and the environs. And that must be also challenging and a little bit frustrating as well because then education is still not, even though voters used to put it in the top two or three, maybe they still do, certainly big in this coming election, uh, which I'd love to talk to you about in a minute. But uh, it must be frustrating because it still it falls by the wayside. So now it's coming out that, oh, is it money or is it reform? You know, are we going to... Is Scott Walker going to lose because in Wisconsin the unions, you know, are going after him? Is money going to win the day, therefore change the complexion in Arizona? All those things are suddenly, like, all over, right, the news. But the last six months, they really haven't been until there was a controversy, unless there was a strike, unless somebody said something negative. So do we have to make it really sexy? Is that how to get everything covered? Well... That helps. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. That does help. I'll say this. Um, this may not really be the answer you want, but I'll, it's how I view it, mm-hmm. which is that I've covered a lot of big middle-of-the-storm stories in my career. So I covered three presidential races, and the, my, the beat I came from most immediately was immigration, which was, you know, part of the storm on not a daily basis, but a lot. Um, and the reason why I chose to take this job and with this beat was because there are I, that's a thrill to cover those sorts of things. And I've had like enormous, um, I should say I also covered the White House for four years. So I've had like enormous um, uh, experiences on those high profile beats. But what I really was looking for was a chance to go deeper and be more selective about what I wrote, not be driven by the news so much, being able to make my choices about where I wanted to make a mark. So that's what I'm trying to do with this beat as mm-hmm. I learn it. Um, I am new to it, and I'm learning it, and looking for those stories that haven't been told. But yeah, it's you know, the, yes, there are some frustrations because you know you're competing. You know, you got to find ways. The story, these stories, have to be better than ever. If they're not going to be sexier or controversial, they have to. You have to really find a way to make that story stand out. And and you know, that's a challenge we all should try to rise to. Right. Well, and then the question becomes, whose definition of sexy? Right? Is the editors? Is the public? You know, a lot of us who are complete wonks and crazy, as we've been having discussions just again in the recent uh, days, are think it's kind of sexy in a sad sort of way that fewer than 40 kids are proficient in anything, right? And so, you know, if you're in China, they're, like, they're, they're running races around us trying to find out solutions to how their kids can be mainstream acceptable and beat the pants off of us. Here we're like, yes, but my school's really nice, or isn't it nice that I went to this program yesterday? You know, so, like, achievement doesn't seem very acceptable. Is that your read? I think that when you have a problem like that, which is somewhat um, perennial, even if it's getting worse, but it's not, like, 
this is this is new today. I mean, this is it's it, you have to be creative and finding ways to write about that and even harder probably to get those kinds of stories onto TV. You know, you have to they have to you have to have a creative or an interesting or a different way in just saying Great I'm going to write a story about what a big problem X, Y, or Z is. You should like think to yourself, if it wasn't your issue, let's say the issue was health care or the issue was immigration or the issue was a foreign policy crisis in, um, in Yemen or some area that you don't care passionately about, would you be likely to read a story, a long story about the perennial problems in those fields. You know, maybe you would if it was done well, but maybe you wouldn't. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so I think that we all need, like, some perspective along those lines. And that's so – but that's not an excuse. No, that's just a point. reality, you know. Right. So you have to find ways for the problems that are persistent and that are real to look into it. And, and what I have found is somebody new coming into this is both a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because I see things that – maybe everybody else knew. And I say, well, I think this is a story. I think we should address this and write the story. And where someone else might have said, oh, there's nothing new about that. But in right. fact, it would be new to a lot of people. A curse because there might be things that I come along and say, oh, isn't this interesting? They're like, oh, we've written we've a hundred stories about that. Where were you? I was, like, oh, I was busy with immigration or whatever, some other topic. But, right. Um, so, so, but in any case, that's the that's, that's the really reality. interesting. So, yeah. Well, and in a, in, a, in a way, everything old is new again as well now. Uh, you know, if you look at, for example, the race for governor in Florida, you have um, the Republican who's running, who is uh, kind of building on and planning to take the mantle of what was started with Governor Bush, which is more choices, more innovation, more online, more changes, more flexibility. They would say more local control, um, you know, different diffuse power authorities. And the new guy, uh, Rep- Rep- Gillums, Representative Gillums, is saying essentially, no, we got to roll all that stuff back. We need to pull money back from charter schools. There shouldn't be choices. I mean, he is basically putting out something that's very pre-charter, if you will, or pre-reform. And people are covering it like it's brand new, like it's this is like the most amazing thing in the world. And um, it's interesting to watch sort of this political um, back and forth in several states going on with the races. I mean, that must be consuming a lot of airtime, I would imagine, in the media. Well, certainly in those states and then selectively nationally. I mean, I haven't covered the Florida race, so I can't speak directly to it. But I will say that even if those debates have been had before, if they're ha- being had right now in a hot gubernatorial race, they are new again. Mm-hmm. You know, they are new again. Mm-hmm. And voters have a choice between two different visions. And so the fact that they're being covered and contrasted, I think, is is what you would expect and really what voters probably want to know so they can make their choices. That's really interesting. Um, Great point. Thank you for sharing that. Um, So given uh, your arrival to the beat of education, which is now how how old? I think uh, I'm about four months in. Four months in, Washington Post, baptism by fire. You came in at a time when we have an education secretary that a lot of the media like to cover. Um, and follow. You've been in audiences with her. I hear you were traveling nationally. Give me some of your observations. What, what was your What was that like for you? Uh, traveling with her? Yeah, and just and just kind of the entire environment where she went and, yeah. and what'd you do? 
Um, well, she did a what she called a rethink school tour. Um, it sort of replaced what had been was going to be an earlier back to school tour um, in the South. And I was with her in three states. Um, it was a lot, of, a lot of scrambling because I do not have my own private plane, um, unlike the secretary. <laughs> so I was uh, ch- chasing her in rental cars and and uh, and wow. airplane shuttles. But um, you know, I, I think I'm still. In terms of uh, drawing broad conclusions about her, I'm not ready to necessarily um, come to final conclusions, or I don't know if there'll ever be final conclusions, because I really am. One of the things that I have set about trying to do in a very real way is look and see what she's like and evaluate her for what she's doing as not only how she is known. I mean, she has a very negative reputation in a lot of parts of this country. She went through a very um, tough confirmation process. That process did not do her any favors. She's had some high-profile interviews that have not gone well. Um, I uh, find, I when I was out with her on the road, I saw moments where I, th- I thought she was utterly charming. Mm-hmm. And I saw moments where I didn't necessarily see... Um, a lot of um, uh, a lot of detail about what she wanted to do, mm-hmm. or so, and it was hard to necessarily uh, come away with a full understanding of what her what her goals were. Um, but I think that it was interesting to see her sort of out on the road and in the real world. I mean, we definitely saw some interesting places. Um, there was a lot about online learning. Um, it seems to be something she's interested in. Mm-hmm. There was uh, we were at Georgia Tech where there was a uh, conversation about their online um, degree programs, and she seemed very interested in that. We we're also in a very rural uh, high school in Mississippi, a very poor county in Mississippi, where there was an AP Physics class being taught uh, mostly online, um, with a teacher in the classroom, but being taught through videos and um, with Skype sessions of college students that, you know, giving kids who would not otherwise have access to AP physics um, that opportunity. So that she seemed very interested in that as well. So so that was interesting to see sort of see both of those programs. Another thing that was interesting is in at least two of the places where, where I was, she's you know still drawing protesters, even though her um, appearances are typically not advertised very far in mm. advance, um, far enough advance for, for some moderate-sized protests to be organized. That's interesting. And it's fascinating that that you're also getting to see as a byproduct of following her those kinds of programs underway. Um, I like to use this analogy about some of the work that I want to see done in rural America, that if you've got like the best calculus teacher in the world somewhere, why can't they be in a classroom in Maxton, North Carolina? And I don't even mean through video. I mean like beaming in right now and interacting because there is software to be able to do that, to have a student sitting there and actually see each other and raise questions with a teacher maybe guiding them. And maybe that teacher in the classroom is exceptional at something else and she can be beamed in. I'm using a completely bad term here as a Star Trek, but maybe she can be beamed externally. And, And seeing that and knowing that there is some of that going on is a really kind of cool thing mm-hmm. to be able to see. Yeah, it was it was it was a cool thing to see. So and it was a combination. There was a Yale uh, um, 
physicist who was do had the videotape courses, and we saw a little bit of that. She seemed to be an excellent teacher. And then there were also these live Skype sessions with the undergraduate from elite universities mostly who were, you know, Trying doing to help them. tutoring essentially. Yeah, I mean yeah. technology. It's really fascinating how uh, that can come to be. I mean that's a controversy also. That um, have you covered the whole virtual versus brick and mortar school? Um, I, are you talking about in charters yeah, in terms of charters? Yeah. Well, I did write a big story about the uh, demise of ECOT in Ohio. Oh, that's right. And how that was affecting actually that was a political story. How that's affecting the political, the political races race. this year. Um, so I think that uh, that I, is not necessarily a, a an example that I think a lot of proponents would want to hold up. But um, you know, if you want to talk about that a little bit, I mean, it's been it's very interesting. I mean, it really was a you know, spectacular uh, collapse. Right. Um, and there are uh, Republicans in, o- in Ohio were really all in for school choice. And they set up a system that was criticized even by some school choice advocates as not having enough controls. And, you know, perhaps as a result of that, did ECOT was allowed to flourish and had a lot of support um, from um, Republicans who are now running for higher office. And so they are, whether that will be dispositive or not in the campaign, right. it's hard to say. Right. Um, even if the Democrats win, you know, it's you never really know exactly why. But, um, but especially for um, the races right now for auditor and for attorney general, that that issue is um, quite prominent. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I did see that story. And and ECOT, for those uh, listeners out there, is uh, the Electronic Classroom of Tomorrow. tomorrow. Yes. And that... I always thought it should be paired with the Dippin' Dots, the ice cream <laughs> of the future. But <laughs> <Sorry>. anyway. <laughs> and there were many of those companies that started in the early days of the charter movement in Ohio um, interesting from two perspectives. One, I remember that was probably my first encounter with credit recovery and hadn't realized how big of a business it was actually for all schools, right? And so, you know, they were trying to take that aspect of education out of or at least challenge the existing system like we can do this better so you don't have to show up at the school, you can do it online, which for some still works, right? I mean, there are still companies that are out there and they're doing it. Um, I'm not going to get you into debates about what companies do it well or not, but that was really interesting that those were credit recovery. And of course, there, there, there's no question it was a dismal failure. Um, along the way, there were some people served by it. But I think this desperation to serve students who are not currently being served is creating some risk, right? And it's going to create some winners and losers. Um, what was, what's been fascinating, though, is that um, there wasn't more of a hue and cry over that in particular. I think some charters got dragged along with that as if they're all failures. Um, ECOT in even the most uh, liberal charter circles, if you will, the most progressive charter circles, has always been a pretty black mark. Um, so it's fascinating. But it did have 12,000 students enrolled when it when it f- um, was forced to close mid-year. So this was not a small player on no. the scene. No. And, and you have to wonder, like, who, I mean, who are those people? Like, who are those people signing up? So were they getting something, right? And to me, I kind of go, you know, that's you kind of leap to higher education, go, is that at all akin to the community college students who, like, churn through community colleges year after year with defaults or whatever because they didn't get something? Were they not? Not prepared to be in a school you know is there a different answer for them out there well I think it part of it and I'm not an expert on this but I'll just some of what I gleaned from the reporting of the story 
story, you know, is that a lot of the kids who were enrolled in ECOT were um, kids who were having trouble in often in inner city schools um, and were, you know, risk for dropout. And then they were, you know, maybe they had a job, maybe they had were a teen parent, maybe teen mom, most likely, I assume, mm-hmm. um, you know, all tough, tough situations. These are not people who are typically, I kind of assumed naively, perhaps in the beginning, when I first heard about online um, charter schools, that it was sort of homeschoolers taking advantage of it, where the parent was really involved, and right. they were just sort of, this was an extra layer. But no, it was, it was really more a lot of kids on their own, um, trying to do, get through school. And I think that's really challenging to try to get, have a kid do an online course if they're not succeeding with all the um, guardrails in a brick-and-mortar building, and then they're now going to have to try to succeed with essentially the accountability of a laptop. Um, I, and I think that was that was just sort of a challenging proposition right from the start when you think about who the population of that was being drawn to that. Um, I think there also was a situation where um, the – there was a question about you know how they should be reimbursed. Was it and they were being reimbursed essentially by enrollment, and that's all that got counted was are you enrolled? Were you given the opportunity to learn access to mm-hmm. the materials versus were you logging in and actually participating? And right. that's what brought them down eventually was that they got audited and tons of kids were never logging in or rarely logging in, and then the state said, okay, we're taking the money back for those pe- those kids, and ECOT was unable to pay it back. Right. Yeah, but your, but your observation, which is terrific, really speaks to this um, this amazing need. I mean, talk about, you know, if we can find the places that are really doing this well. And everyone's trying, right? Brick and mortar, regular schools, traditional public schools, charters, even many of the online charter providers are really facing very, very much head-on. I had Kevin Shavis on the show at one point talking about the things that he's really trying to do since he joined K-12 to expand uh, to career and kind of really understand and have insights it's a, it's a tough nut to crack doing the school thing which you know everyone will say uh, but this notion that we have this 150 year old system more or less that in most cases we're all still used to the 25 desks in a row looking at the teacher and expected to learn the way we are wired today is just you know there's a clash right between old and new I wonder if you're seeing that as you go out um, and you're on your on your way. I, I think you know more about this than I do, <laughs> likely. So I don't. And I I um, I don't know, but I think it's a good question to ask. Is is you know does do. Can, can the traditional system succeed? I think it's yeah. a fair question. So what do you want people to know about being in the media today? You know, is it hard to pitch to your editor because of all the noise? Is it hard to just be media? Have you ever had anyone throw stuff at you? I don't know. Like, what, what is it like to be on the other side, yeah. as they said, the fourth estate? Right. Well, I'll, I would say... I personally, it's right now in my career, it is, I would not call it hard. Um, I have a great editor. We have a large education team. My editor cares about education coverage quite a bit. Um, I, I feel supported. Um, that said, I think that the media is under attack right now, um, you know, from the president on down um, in ways that are dangerous. Um, being called the enemy of the people, I think, is a dangerous thing. I, I don't express my personal opinions really about anything other than media freedom. And I think that um, that's dangerous because I think a, a, um, a, 
um, aggressive and free press is the, a um, cornerstone of democracy. And uh, I think we all should value that. And that sometimes the media is going to say things we like, and sometimes it's going to say things we don't like, and we all have a choice about what media we, we care to consume. Um, in terms of my own personal experience with some of this, I have had some some experiences with some of this. Um, I'll, I guess I'll talk um, most I'll, – I'll talk about um, – a situation when I was covering the Clinton campaign in the 2016 presidential race. And as you may recall, um, Democratic emails were hacked. And some of those emails I was um, were mine that I had sent to either to officials at the uh, Democratic National Committee or to John Podesta, who was the chairman of the Hillary Clinton campaign. And um, there was one in particular to someone at the DNC, a completely innocuous email that, that was really um, – just a normal reporter doing her job in a very typical, unremarkable way, mm-hmm. um, asking for a piece of information, which was read to be me, quote, colluding, unquote, with the DNC because I was seeking information from the DNC. So um, I won't spend the time we have here yeah. on the details of it, yeah. but I got an enormous number of very, very nasty, right? very, very nasty emails, calls to my cell phone. My cell phone was on the email at my signature file at the bottom. And just uh, some of which were threatening. I had another situation where I was covering immigration. So that was that was essentially those attacks were com- coming from the, the far left, from mm-hmm. essentially the Bernie Sanders crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was covering immigration, I got attacked at one point from the right. And at one point, um, and again, I won't, won't waste our time right. with the details, but at one point I had a um, – person who sent an email asking me, you know, how would I feel if my child was killed by an illegal immigrant? And there was my public picture from my Facebook page of me and one of my children was pasted onto that email. So I don't think that's funny. No, I don't think it's remotely okay. No. And um, I and and what's happened to me is like far less than what's happened to other people, Um, Mm -hmm. people who media who attend Trump rallies who get screamed at. Mm-hmm. You know, by the crowd mm-hmm. who have feared for their safety, literally feared for their safety. I've never feared for my safety. I, so I do have some strong opinions about that. And I think there's an awful lot of people out there um, and uh, intelligent folks listening to this that would agree that while they may or may not like media or media coverage of a certain person, it is never okay to um, attempt to harm, threaten, or even be that uncivil. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and we are at one of those incredible moments in time, and I will use the overused word inflection point once again, um, where where being able to agree to disagree, even fighting about it civilly, um, has to be brought back in. You know, one of the things that um, as a as an old you know not an old person, sorry, but mm-hmm. as a as a political science, you know, lover, um, going way back when, um, you know, there were fights. I mean, look at just Hamilton. There was a there was a <laughs> duel. I mean, there were people yelling, screaming, arguing, cajoling, but they were doing it with facts and they were thoughtful and they were in um, for the most part controlled environments and uh, and yeah that's that must be really hard if we all could just have our arguments in Lin-Manuel um, rap form I think it we'd all be a lot more amused if nothing else we but, would yes. totally we would totally <laughs> knock, knock that out of the park exactly and 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 kids have to learn that I mean part of you know part of the work in getting uh, students to understand um, and kids how to engage um, and all sides. And again, say that you dislike this or don't agree with it, but 
hate, particularly now uh, with everything that's going on, um, is is just not acceptable. Okay, Okay, final quick question for you. So most interesting education-related individual you've ever covered? Oh, gosh. Oh, my gosh. I don't know if I have covered enough education-related individuals to actually have a thoughtful answer to that. Maybe yet to be discovered? Maybe yet to be discovered. I mean, Betsy DeVos, I'd say, is a very interesting person. I, I don't... Um, I don't think she's a one-dimensional person at all. I think she's an interesting person, and I'm still getting to know her. Um, I I would put her on the list for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I also think, like, um, less high-profile, um, but, like, someone like Arnie Duncan I thought was really interesting. I, I saw him from a different vantage point, but he sort of shook things up in his own way. Um, so I thought, you know, a lot more interesting probably than your typical Uh, education secretary too. Terrific. My guest has been Laura Meckler, uh, the education reporter on national education policy for the Washington Post. It has been such a pleasure having you, Laura. Thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Reality Check. I'm Jeannie Allen. Listen and subscribe to Reality Check on edreform.com, National Review Online, iTunes, Stitcher, and everywhere podcasts are heard. Find out more at edreform.com slash reality check.